0: this week on Let's Connect.
1: We know one of the basic principles that we know about in terms of recovery is there needs to be a titration between what's called external motivation to change and internal motivation to change. So we want a patient, I want my patients to be internally motivated to change. They're sick and tired of being sick and tired. They don't want to feel the way they recognize that the carnage of their lives is too great. That's how a patient will change. External motivation to change is saying, I'm gonna divorce you, I'm gonna fire you, I'm gonna cut off your funds. That's something from outside. And so while that's important initially to get somebody into treatment, ultimately to find a path of recovery, the person has to be internally motivated. And for celebrities, they don't really have that, right? Because they're constantly being rewarded for the behavior. And there's a whole industry set up around them to deny, to deny what he
0: says. Welcome to Let's Connect. My name is Keith McPherson, and I'm so glad you've decided to join me for this next episode. Let's Connect is a podcast that interviews people from all walks of life who have inspiring stories to share about who they are and who they're becoming. As a life coach and someone who's genuinely curious about connecting with people, spirituality, mindfulness, and what this world is all about, I'm here to ask powerful questions, share my insights as well, and to really connect on a deep level to help us all grow an awareness of who we really are. So sit back, relax, and let's connect. All right dr paul joining me here live on let's connect thanks for being here paul it's great to have you here
1: thank you it's really good to be with you
0: i have been so enjoying your book fragile power (laughs) it's by my bedside and every moment i get i've been uh reading through it i'm just curious to start off like how did this book come about that would be
1: Yeah, like most meaningful things in life, it certainly wasn't direct. It certainly wasn't quick. Um, It really followed the trajectory of my life. You know, I entered the realm of behavioral health rather circuitously. I started my career first as a lawyer and then went into the realm of environmental justice. And I was working for Greenpeace International in Europe. And then September 11th happened and I was living in Amsterdam. And as a white privileged male growing up in America, the security of my world had always been guaranteed until it wasn't on that day and I came back to America and I really took some time off and I did some serious soul searching about what I wanted the next phase of my life to be and I decided um, that I really wanted to focus on mental health and addiction treatments. and so I went back to school and I did a master's degree in clinical psychology and I started working with people clinically who worked on, this, on the very far end of the, the economic and power spectrum. I was working with HIV positive transgender sex workers. And then in to make a living, I was working on the other end of the economic spectrum with people who lived in the world of extraordinary wealth and power. And in that work, I realized that there was a daughter of one of the families that I was representing who had a crack addiction. And in spite of all the money, in spite of all the power this family had, There was no solution to her addiction and in fact the money and the power was was causing the problems and i was riveted by that because i grew up right uh, as a white male being taught that wealth is the key to all of your problems and if you have enough money you can solve all your problems and and i quickly found that in the realm of addictions and behavioral health that wasn't the case and then that led on me on this journey, this academic and clinical journey, to develop a clinical formulation to work with people who live in the world in positions of power.
0: Wow. Amazing. It's amazing that you've had such a diverse um, clientele from like, you know, the rich right. and famous to the whole other spectrum. Um, is, is there when you're working with people, is there a preference in, in your role as a therapist of who you work with or does it matter?
1: The preference that I have is with people who are honest. Um, you know, in my work, I, I really seek, and one of the things I talk about at length in my book is how I, I seek to pierce those labels that we put on people in society. Mm-hmm. Whether it's white, whether it's black, whether it's gay, whether it's straight, whether it's Christian, Jew, Muslim. I mean, we, we put all of these labels on human beings. And my work as a clinician seeks to pierce those levels and connect to the humanness that resides within. And, you know, my biggest frustration comes when I work with anybody who has a hard time with being honest with themselves, with other human beings, um, has a tenuous relationship with the truth. Um, and so, so I really, my preference, I don't have a preference in terms of economic spectrum. They're all, you know, everybody is wonderful and challenging and extraordinary and frustrating, you know, in their own way. It's just the nature of, of being human. And um, certainly there are different challenges that come. From working with people who are celebrities and who are wealthy and, and powerless um, just as there are celeb- just as there are challenges of working with people who are poor and powerless mm-hmm. so it's just different
0: yeah it's, it's so interesting you know I mean the work that you've done with the the rich and famous label that type of persona it's right. so interesting it, as I'm reading through your book i'm thinking about my own drive in my life of Wanting to be rich and famous, I you know I spent sure. a, a summer on the Canadian reality TV show Canadian Idol back in the day and uh, uh-huh. became a finalist on the show and it was around that time I realized like this is not all it's really cracked up to be. I mean, it's just such an illusional world of this mindset of I've got to get something and prove something. And I'm just curious in your opinion, like why are we so conditioned and cultured that way to try to move to this place of Being rich and famous, why is that such a driver?
1: Uh, Because we're animals. Um, You know, we dress (laughs) up well and we have nice Uh, (laughs) accoutrements. But but we're animals, we're primal. And, And part of being an animal is the fact that we are hunters and gatherers. So we are genetically set up to go out and find things and bring them back. And then in addition to being that we're hierarchical, right? So so we organize ourselves just like bees, just like other animals, we organize ourselves in terms of hierarchical structures. So the combination of those two things pushes us to go out and seek and to acquire um, and to show off, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and so uh, that's just who we are as a species. Um, And and look, I, Think that aspiration is a wonderful thing. I think aspiration moves humanity forward. I want us to be ambitious. I want us to kind of keep going and searching and questioning and wondering what the next, what our next goal is. I certainly have my whole life, and that's what's given me a rich and meaningful life. The issue, of course, is when it becomes right. It's like anything; it's when it gets a little out of whack and causes causes pro- more problems than it causes solutions in our lives.
0: Mm. Let's let's chat about that. I mean one of the areas that you work in um, is addictions. And I mean, I can only imagine when we start talking about people that have become rich and famous, we see it in the news all the time, people battling with addictions. Um, Curious, like how is it so that, and this is probably the big question you get asked a lot, how is it so that like the most wealthy people in the world, the richest people in the world um, have addiction problems when they have all the money that could solve the problem potentially?
1: Uh, Because, you know, addictions are, we always are looking for the one thing, the silver bullet that will explain everything. Mm. You know, addictions involve a melange of issues that come together. So there's the physical. So people are genetically predisposed to addictive disorders. Their body doesn't process drugs or alcohol like other people. Um, There's the environmental factor. So um, you can be genetically predisposed to alcohol, but if you never put alcohol into your system, Chances are you're not going to develop an alcohol problem. Uh, And then there's also the emotional. And so uh, typically people who suffer from addictive disorders have some sort of trauma background where someone whose care and protection they desperately needed during their developmental phase betrayed them. Mm. And so in that breach, in that ego injury, where they learned that human beings are unreliable, right? And I can't trust anybody but myself. And so they put up a protective wall and they never were able to heal that breach. And so when they find drugs and alcohol, it soothes that breach, gives them a sense of power. It gives them a sense of control over their lives. And then, um, it, then, then it switches, doesn't it? And then it becomes to to control them, and and take away their options, and take away their power, and take away their control. So, um, so that's 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 why. Um, and then with people of power and celebrities, um, consequences, right? They're protected from a lot of consequences. We know one of the basic principles that we know about in terms of recovery is. There needs to be a titration between what's called external motivation to change and internal motivation to change. So we want a patient, I want my patients to be internally motivated to change. Hmm. They're sick and tired of being sick and tired. They don't want to feel the way they recognize that the carnage of their lives is too great. Hmm. That's how a patient will change. External motivation to change is saying, I'm gonna divorce you, I'm gonna fire you, I'm gonna cut off your funds. That's something from outside. And so while that's important initially to get somebody into treatment, ultimately to find a path of recovery, the person has to be internally motivated. And for celebrities, they don't really have that, right? Because they're constantly being rewarded for the behavior and there's a whole industry set up around them to deny and I would exist.
0: That is so interesting. You know, when you talk about internal motivation, somebody comes into your office, rich and famous, brand, or that title, completely rewarded all their lives. How do you move them into this space of recovering from an addiction and becoming internally motivated? How do you, how do you even begin that process?
1: There's something called the therapeutic alliance, which is the attachment that the patient has. With the clinician and i and i talk about it as akin to a delivery system Mm. so penicillin comes in a pill and so the pill is the form that you interject the medicine if the pill is faulty then the medicine doesn't work so the most important aspect of any kind of treatment is the therapeutic alliance that the patient has with the clinician that patient has to intuitively trust that clinician, and to get there, they're going to challenge. They're going to constantly, they're going to fire you. They're going to, they're going to constantly challenge to prove to themselves that you are trustworthy. And so, basically, the work has to come from being vulnerable with the patients in a sort of in a therapeutic frame, certainly appropriately. Um, never getting into a power struggle with a patient particularly patients of power i approach my work from a postmodern feminist stance which is that it needs to be collaborative mm-hmm. because particularly with this population if i come at them as the privileged male with a phd with a doctor or superior knowledge right right they're just going to crush me right they're going to be like get out of here so so it's you know it's a bit of a it's a well, it's more than a bid, isn't it? It's a dance. It's really being able to see the patient for the humanity to try to pierce those labels because they're going to, they're going to, they're, they're used to getting their way. They're used to manipulating. They're used to seduction. And they're going to continue to try that in the therapeutic relationship to see whether or not I am worthy of their trust. Wow. And I better be worthy of it because yeah. they will, because they will, they will leave.
0: Wow, yeah. what's it like to be on the um, the side of the fence, so to speak, or the, the chair that you sit in when you're sitting across yeah. from someone that's just pushing your buttons and testing you to see if you're going to crack? Like, what's that like for you?
1: It's exhausting. Um, <laughs> Bad. It can be humiliating. Um, it 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 requires. Um, you know, it requires the work that we do in meditation and yoga, right? It requires creating space between that emotional reactivity and then the reaction that I have. Because typically the reaction that I would have to the patient when they challenge me is not the appropriate therapeutic therapeutic intervention. And so I need to make sure that I'm constantly monitoring my physical reaction. Like, what is my body telling me? What is my reaction? Now, chances are that what the patient is doing to me it's no different than what they do for everybody else in their life. Wow. What I need to do as a clinician is is feel that reaction and then give them a different, a reparative human reaction to it. Wow. So for instance, I had a patient once when I was starting out who challenged my office. She didn't feel that my office was <laughs> up to snuff. And... Um, I I was I was taken aback. She snapped at me like she asked why I didn't have a window in my office. And I thought, why don't I have a window in my office? And <laughs> all of my fears and insecurities came to the fore. And um, you know, what I wanted to say was within, you know, we don't like it lump it and out of here that was not appropriate what i had to recognize was that she treated me like she treated every other male in her life and so then i had to give us space and then find the appropriate time which occurred probably three sessions later where i brought it up to her and i said you know when you challenged my my office did that did you make did you think that that would i'm an inferior clinician because that's what you projected to me wow so we were able to talk honestly about it. Um, and so, so it's really being able to recognize what the patient brings up in me, my reaction, and then sorting through it and figuring out what's an appropriate clinical intervention that will not assuage my ego because it's okay, if my ego can get bruised. Right. <laughs> but but to move my patient in a reparative direction and give her some insight into how she is reacting and treating the other significant men in her life who who were who were had actually moved out on her so um, yeah. it was it was um, it was it was a good example of an intervention but yeah you know um it's not about me it's about the patient right and our relationship yeah
0: yeah what a pra- that that is a meditation practice i imagine <laughs> it's just incredible
1: it's a meditation as you're talking about it, it too
0: i i'm thinking about um Families that have um, you know a member of the family that's got an addiction, and just listening to you speak it, remind, it it almost sounds like it could be advice or a practice for how do we support a family member that's struggling with addiction when you're just completely at you know your wits' end about how do I deal with this? What kind of advice would you give family that's surrounding an addiction
1: so Typically, I I work also from a system standpoint, right? And so when when typically somebody in a family has an addiction, they become what's called the identified patient. So all of the pathology gets focused on that particular patient. Um, And and typically what happens is that the family as a system tries to solve it. Mm -hmm. And if they're repeatedly unsuccessful in solving it, then that to me is indication that you have to bring something or someone outside of the system into the system to change the dynamics now if there are enough resources you can bring in another clinician if there aren't resources to do that you can bring in a family another family member or a friend of the patient so so that you can begin to change the dynamic of the system and you can also begin to recognize that this is a systemic disorder Mm -hmm. that while addictions thrive in isolation um they are not cured in isolation and they're healed in reparative relationships with other people in their lives. Um, You know, addictions are incredibly, they're gut-wrenching. They're Mm. really gut-wrenching because you have people who are bright and smart and loving and caring, and because of their addiction, they turn into people who the universe or God or whatever you want to call it did not intend them to be, And, and, and then they're their own worst enemies. They just can't. Get out of their own way, um, and and so it's grueling, and so it's important to recognize that as a family, if you have not been able to solve the addictive disorder, then bring someone from outside of your immediate family in to try to change the dynamic. Um, mm. And 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 it's okay for you to get your own help and to get your own support. That's actually it's better than okay. It's 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 proven to be highly highly effective throwing a net over somebody and dragging them off to treatment those outcomes are pretty dismal so um, yeah. try to work again in the in the dynamics of it all
0: got it when when you're looking for um, outside help is there anything to kind of be aware of or look out for I'm, I'm imagining there's got to be different approaches to dealing with addiction depending on who you're working with so just to give some advice to people listening that might be in the process of looking for a therapist or a third party to help?
1: Yeah. So you want somebody that has an understanding of addictive disorders, certainly. Um, and, you know, I think that it's important to trust your instincts and just don't go off what you find online, <laughs> uh, you know, like a lot of people have very clever and smart websites, but you really need to talk to the person and you need to ring them up. You need to be old school about it and ring them up and get them on the phone and have a conversation and ask them about their philosophy. So there are two types of addictive disorders. There's something called behavioral addictions where somebody's addicted to a behavior. So they're addicted to sex or they're addicted to eating or they're addicted. To the internet, um, so those have a different treatment approach to a substance abuse disorder. So, substance abuse disorder is if you're addicted to drugs or alcohol or, or, or something that you ingest in your body. Mm. In those particular cases, abstinence-based programs are the best. Um, behavioral addictions—you, you, you know—you can't stop eating, so you need to have behavioral modification techniques. Um, you know. I believe in harm reduction, in terms of harm reduction is that if you have a patient who's addicted to heroin and they're shooting up and there's a chance, good chance that they're gonna come across some fentanyl and overdose. If you wanna like smoke some pot or do something else, something that's that's less harmful, um, let's try it for a while, right? So, so it's moving away from that particular behavior. Now, ultimately the ultimate goal is abstinence. Um, but, but if you look at sort of methadone is, is a behavioral reduction, right? We're taking some money off of heroin and we're putting them on, on another substance. So um, so I think um, it's important to recognize that there's no silver, silver bullet, like I mentioned before, that you have to look at a number of different factors uh, in the treatment, that the person who you're working with, the integrity of that person competency, the compassion that that person has is critically important. Um, and also the methodology of of, of of the treatment approach is important. Mm,
0: okay. Wow. <laughs> this is such good advice. I, I'm just looking, I, I did some prep questioning around this interview because there's just so much. And I know my monkey mind wants to wander to so many places with you because just the topic of this is so fascinating to me. But I, I wanted to go back to your book for a minute. And in there, are you you're exploring this question of why is it that people who have everything often end up feeling like they are never enough? And I'd love for you to just speak further to this. I mean, it's just such an interesting dichotomy to me.
1: Typically, that's a relational disorder. So again, as I mentioned, that somewhere in their developmental path, somebody whose protection and love they needed betrayed them. And so they basically swore off qualitative aspects of their life love, nurturing, care, safety, and decided that quantitative aspects of their life were the things that were going to give them security. And off they went on a compulsive search for, as you mentioned earlier, fame and fortune, external validation, external markers of success. You know, numbers are incredibly grounding and calming. And one of the most common interventions I give to my patients who suffer from Addictive disorders is the simple act of counting from one to ten as many times as you need to calm yourself. Because what is an anxiety disorder? An anxiety disorder is when you feel out of control, when you feel like your world is spinning around you. Mm -hmm. And so, grounding ourselves in a linear, logical, numerical system is incredibly healing. Mm -hmm. Count from one to ten for as many times as you need to um, until you feel yourself grounding, right? It's incredibly important. Uh, numbers, particularly numbers in a bank account, can provide that same service, right?
0: That's interesting. So if I'm
1: feeling, <laughs> if I'm feeling, uh, if I'm feeling like the world's spinning out of control, and I don't like the way our political system's going, or I don't like the, what's happening with our environment, or if I don't like what, if I don't like the way my neighbor looked at me, or I don't like the way that the person at the checkout was glib to me, right? And I start spinning into this vortex um i can go into my account and look to see how much money i'm worth and Mm. that grounds me and that gives me a sense of 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 stature a sense of validation um a sense of importance in the world because again right let's go back to what we talked about earlier is that the nature of us is that we're hunter-gatherers who organize ourselves in hierarchical culture and so it can give us that sense of groundedness and superiority um, and well-being right hmm what
0: about the case where somebody gets overly attached to like I need to get uh, you know this amount of money in the bank to prove my worth like what about that scenario um,
1: like I said I, I don't I don't think aspiration is I think setting goals like I'm I'm Virgo so I love lists right so I'm always writing up you know I need to do X Y and Z today uh, so so I I I believe in intentionality the power of intentionality I wrote about I wanted to write a book for 20 years so every morning I would write you know in my in my journal that I'm an author I'm am a you know and so and, and so I believe in that um I think like anything right we 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 have to work in the integration that that what happens, and one of the the hallmarks of mental health is the capacity to hold two disparate ideas and integrate them. And so that means that we need to have balance and we need to have equilibrium in our life. And when we are so heavily weighted on external markers of success and accumulating and acquiring to and where we ignore um relationships we ignore friendships we ignore our family we ignore sense of self we ignore our bodies right we detach from our bodies we detach from our emotions to get to that particular place that's where pathology arises
0: Mm. wow it's so interesting i'm i'm also just skipping back to how you got into the space of working with the rich and famous uh Clientele. I mean, that seems like kind of a, an authentic space to be in to to build the trust up. Like, how did that begin for you, and how did it grow?
1: Well, you know, it's a classic example of necessity as the mother of invention. And so, I saw in my work that the people of wealth and power were not getting the quality mental health treatment that they needed. Wow! Right, and we look, we can look historic from Judy Garland to Prince to to, to we, we there's there's that, that that people of wealth and power were being objectified and manipulated for their wealth and mm-hmm. that they were not getting culturally competent care. And so my work basically I, I was pulled into it because um, a as a humanist I don't think that people of any label should be objectified. And so so I saw all in my work a number of disheartening things. I saw, uh, particularly in my work in the environmental movement when I started back then, how nonprofits were objectifying and manipulating people of wealth to raise money for their particular organizations. And I thought this is fascinating because here we are trying to save the planet and we're talking about a segment of humanity with a fair amount of disdain. Hmm. And that just didn't sit with me very well. And then when I w- went into the field of behavioral health, I saw that there was robust and really wonderful research in minority populations who exist in the world in positions of powerlessness. So feminist theory is brilliant. it work around minority stress in terms of LGBT populations, genius, absolutely genius. And yet when I was talking to people about my interest, and what I was seeing as a clinician, people were saying things to me. Why would you waste your time studying rich people? <laughs> and really? Thought, what? What? For that very reaction that you just had, <laughs> and and there was just such ingrained hostility and resentment towards people of wealth. Okay, whatever. But if you're a human, and it's not whatever. If you're a if you're a compassionate human being, if you hold yourself out as a humanist then then culturally competent, culturally relevant care should not have an economic or a power spectrum.
0: Right. Absolutely. And
1: I don't think that we can say, well, if you are in the top bottom 50%, then you deserve culturally competent care. But if you're in the top 50, then you don't. I mean, that to me is ludicrous, yeah. right? If you're a human being who carries a label, you deserve culturally competent, clinically relevant care it wasn't happening in the field. and so i thought well i have the interest and the resources to pursue this. now listen, have i have i gotten a fair amount of pushback and hostility around it? absolutely, right?
0: Mm. what that to me shows. Hmm? i'm just curious what, what uh, kind, the pushback, the hostility and push what's that? the been?
1: pushback is basically those people aren't deserving of care. and you're saying Got that it. or the thing that i find gets most of is that poor people are more deserving It's like, wait a minute, this isn't a better than less than. This this isn't, we're missing the mark here. This isn't, if you're a human being, then you deserve culturally competent care that's going to move you and your family and your relationships and our world in a reparative direction. And so let's get away from this better than less than. I I, I understand that. Um, How about it's just that every human being, deserves culturally competent care and look the 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 power and the economic gap in our society it's not getting better. it's no. getting profoundly worse.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: And so why is that right? I believe that the solution lies in effective mental health treatment. That if people of power and money are able to cultivate compassion and empathy for other human beings, then we can begin to get out of these silos that we put ourselves in.
0: Wow, that's an that's an speaking about manifesting a beautiful vision for where we need to go. (laughs) How do we? What's the next step as a as a culture towards breaking down these these barriers and seeing people as people? With no yeah. Step.
1: First of all, we've got to get out of this 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 partisanship. We've got to get out of these labels that we assign to society. We've got to even get it out now in terms of America, in terms of Republican and Democrat. I'm a humanist, right? Mm. I want truth and justice, and I want it to advance humanity with dignity and respect. That's it. You can give me a Republican candidate that'll give me that. That'll give me that. That's where I'm going. If you give me a Republican, if Democratic candidate, that's where I'm going. We have gotten so invested in labels of, of human beings that we have lost the common thread that unites humanity. Wow. And so so I feel that the gift that I have been given by the universe is being able to work in the realm of behavioral health, mental health, because Everybody suffers from depression, everybody suffers from anxiety, everybody suffers from an addictive disorder. And 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 if we can sort of talk about that and what it means to be vulnerable, what it means to be what it means to heal, um, outside of all of these labels that we put on them, right? Like why and why are we why are we constantly thinking that better than less than more deserving, less than just deserving? Right. It it, it makes my head spin. If you come to me and you're in psychic pain, I don't care if you're black, you're white, you're gay, you're straight, you're Jew, you're Muslim, I work with all of them. Let's figure out how we can heal your pain and begin to put you back into humanity in a way that you can you can bring the healing and hope that you have gotten in therapy back out into the world. That's where we need to start moving as 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 humanity.
0: Wow. I'm so curious as you're speaking about it. Um again, it feels like a bit of a dichotomy because on one end, all of this comparing and status and the less and the more and the, it kind of feels like hunter-gatherer kind of mentality to me, like as, as you describe it. And then the humanist side of this equation saying, well, no, no, we need to see this as all one, like we're into this place of vulnerability. But to let your guard down, does that mean that you have to let go of the hunter-gatherer mentality or where's that balance or how do you see that <laughs> they,
1: they they all coexist this is what we talked about earlier in terms wow. of a sign of mental health is being able to integrate that wow and that's what we need to be able to do as as a society we need to be able to uh to to, to aspire we need to be able to create we need to be able to innovate we need to be able to create jobs we need to be able to acquire wealth in order to be able to to be present in humanity and to give back Mm. in a way that brings healing hope and moves our world in a reparative direction. Look, this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. By having material possessions and wealth, we are able to move ourselves in a higher reparative direction. When we're not there, we can't do it. And I think that's basically one of the problems where we're experiencing now in the world, in America in particular, that we have been rattled, that our the safety and security of our world has been shaken, that we're living in a very chaotic, uncertain times, being perpetuated from the top down. And in that state of insecurity and feeling unsafe, we just can't reach out to people across from us who are different from us, right? right. We have to resort to the most primitive base emotions, which are violence, which are yeah. And that's that's incredibly destructive. We need to reclaim our equilibrium as human beings who are principled and valued.
0: How do we move towards the conversation of being more vulnerable with each other and, and taking that risk in this in this climate that we're in? You
1: know, I Vulnerability is, is, you know, like the, the field of, of mental health gets these words come into popularity. They you know? do. So, so, <laughs> yes, so, they do. <laughs> and you know, and vulnerability is one of those words now, which has become very much. I see how nervous I get. I'm just like shifting. Like I know see, I am too. <laughs> <it's like> <laughs> vulnerability. <laughs> it's kind of like codependency was right in the 90s and it still is everybody everybody's a narcissist everybody's codependent and everybody should be vulnerable i i i believe in something called strategic vulnerability so know why you're being vulnerable and and with whom you're being vulnerable and and don't just like jump into it right i mean be intentional this is this is another mindfulness technique right sure we want to be we, we want to be intentional and not reactive and so we would if we're being vulnerable. So for instance, in my book, as you know in my book, there's I bring myself into the, the book quite a bit, in fact, in the beginning of every chapter. Yep. That to me as a clinician was terrifying. I did <laughs> not want to do that at all. Yeah. <laughs> so but my editor was like, you need to do this, right? Because of uh, it, it personalizes the story, it brings you into it. Um, that was intentional, right? Mm. So there was an element of intentionality. It will enable you to connect with the readers, which I certainly hope it has done. Oh yeah, it has um, for me
0: anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, it's
1: good to hear. So my editor was right. So, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so again, that, was, um, that was strategic vulnerability. So I was vulnerable because, because I wanted to intentionally connect with other human beings so that I could move them in a reparative direction. Wow.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there's a formula,
1: right?
0: Absolutely. What can you, uh, what is the formula? Let's name that just for people listening.
1: Well, the formula is figuring out what my objective is, first and foremost. Yeah. Which is to make a connection to another human being so I can bring, so I can provide healing and hope to them and then subsequently move them in a reparative direction. Wow. Because we can't move in a reparative direction if we don't have hope. That things can change and that if we can begin experience healing wow
0: that's powerful we
1: have to know that we have to know that it works you can't just just because i have a phd doesn't necessarily mean that you can believe me right i mean there are a lot of people with phds who i don't believe (laughs) i mean it has to be real it has to be authentic it has to be organic yeah um so that's the formula and quite frankly, I think that's what we need to do as humanity. I think that 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 look everybody on both on all sides. I think I know I don't know that I necessarily. Try, I think a majority of the population uh, are fatigued by the problem, and they're just fatigued by the conflict. Absolutely. I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like exhausted by it all. It is, and so I think that there's enough of the population. Look, I, you're never going to. You know, I I think that in terms of the. What's happening in our world in terms of the pandemic? Look, listen, we can't, we have to put this all into context, right? We're in a profound transformation in terms of humanity right now. Mm-hmm. Part of humanity, right? There's going to be a third of the population who are going to be completely unconscious and asleep through all of this. Mm-hmm. There's going to be another third of the population who are going to be like, hmm. Maybe I should make some minor tweaks in my life. Maybe this health thing is important. <laughs> Maybe some relationships with my kid is important. There's another third of the population of which I'm a part of. I really want this to mean something. Yeah. I really want this to have profound significance in my personal life and in and in the world around me. So now we have two thirds of the population. <laughs> like, who are, let's just forget the other third. But we have two thirds of the population who are willing. To make some some changes in terms of what they want to do, and that's the, that's that's the population, that I hope that will 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 become uh, more more awake, uh, more more conscious, more interested in in uniting the division that's occurring in our world, and saying enough already, enough of these labels, enough of pointing the blame, enough of the lies, enough of the, you know, let's let's focus on what's important in our lives, which is what COVID has has forced many of us to do. I don't know. Have you? Have you? Has it changed Absol- the way that you're? Oh, absolutely. Living
0: your life. Well, I think it's definitely changed the pace of things. In, in a sense, like yeah. in terms of we're not traveling all over the globe <laughs> trying to get somewhere. It's like we right. we're really forced to go right. inward and look at who are we being while we're doing everything that we're doing, and why are we doing what we're doing? And it's in a way, it's been a real, for me at least, a real ref- a time of reflection to really evaluate. Right who are we becoming? Like you say, and, and where is this going? And I, uh, yeah, it's so interesting. I, I'm i also just, in terms of the work that you're doing with, you know, I imagine some of the leaders of the world, some of the big influencers in terms of how, what we've deemed popular. I mean, I can't think of a more crucial time to to get into the hearts of those people and to, to really move them into a healthy place so that they can lead and, and set example. What's your thoughts on that?
1: It's a more connected place it's it's a place where they they're they' not living behind three sets of gates uh-huh. where they recognize that they can contribute back to society and and help our world that needs it um, hopefully it's developing consciousness around issues um, and again coming out and being a part of humanity but look, you know being a person there's there's an an enormous amount of of hatred towards people of wealth yeah there's an enormous amount of insecurity like um there's norm you know and so so you know some some of my patients say that look like the world feels profoundly unsafe for me right now so i'm just going to live in my little bubble Mm. that's not going to unite the gap between the haves and the have-nots and bring our humanity together and so i think that it has to happen on both ends you know i think that that that, that everybody needs to be more compassionate to everybody else, whether you're a poor person towards a person of wealth, whether you're a rich person towards a poor, poor person. Um, but to do that, we need to find a common denominator that unites us mm-hmm. as human beings. Um, you know, vulnerability is not such a great sell to a person of extraordinary power and wealth because they've spent their whole life avoiding vulnerability hmm. what might be a more unifying is let's talk about power instead right. of talking about vulnerability let's talk about power right what does power mean to you
0: right i'm curious when you, you say the word power it's funny i was just thinking this your book's called fragile power and i'm just curious what what that means to you fragile power
1: Fragile power is power that's used in a way that's destructive and it's unsustainable. So fragile power is narcissistic, not for fragile power um, abuses others. fragile power lies, fragile power manipulates. Mm. Um, it's not sustainable in the long haul. And I think what we're looking at now in terms of where we are as a world, we need to focus on sustainability because we all admit that where the way we're going is unsustainable. Mm
0: so if you were to we can't keep yeah I, I hear you we can't keep going the way we're going i'm I'm curious but how do we stop right? yeah it's it's well from this place of like fragile power which is really destructive and like what form of power do we want to work towards
1: we want to work towards power that's altruistic and compassionate wow mm-hmm. there's I mean, you know you're a healer you know the ex- the best thing we can do for our patients is to to love them until they can love themselves mm. there's extraordinary power in that mm. i when when my patients change and grow i feel so empowered i feel so validated i feel so seen and heard as a human being who has substance and and and, and who has real value and power in the world and and look the The relationship that, that the patients allow me to have with them is such an extraordinary privilege, and the power that I hold in there is is profound and and I need to make sure that I'm on the side of compassion and healing with all of that yeah that's the power that we need to cultivate individually relationally and in our in our world around us oh <laughs>
0: That feels and is so powerful what you're saying, and uh, it exudes from you. It's like what I'm really appreciating, Doctor Paul, about how you show up. Just even here in our conversation is just the way that you you carry yourself. It's it's like there's a I sense like this real gentle openness to to be with humanity the way you show up, and it's just it's so. I'm hoping the listeners can really feel this, and people watching can really sense this. It's like. You're setting an example of what you're you're speaking about, you're practicing what you're preaching, so to speak, and it's uh it's such a gift, so thank you
1: thank you well, thank you, thank you for for saying that. I mean it's like I said, it's a privilege, and you know I've had my share of existential crises and
0: challenges <laughs> <Me too. laughs>
1: and you know, and it's it's we just keep pushing forward, and the gift is that we can you know and that we don't give up and that we keep moving. Humanity in, in, in a positive direction. Look, I've been profoundly discouraged over the last couple of years, and particularly when COVID struck. Um, but we just keep showing up, don't we? And we keep connecting. And I really appreciate you, the work that you're doing, and the fact that you reached out to me because strength comes in relationships. And to be able to have this con- these conversations are critically important. So Absolutely. Thank
0: you. Thank you. And uh, all of you listening as well, thank you for tuning in to the conversation today. Um, I'm going to leave in the show notes ways you can get in touch with uh, Dr. Paul and his book. And just before you go, I just want to thank you again. Paul, Dr. Paul has actually offered up a few copies of Fragile Power, his book that we're going to give away this week. Uh, so just tune into Instagram to find out how you can win a copy of Dr. Paul's book, Fragile Power as well. And uh, thanks again, Dr. Paul, for, for joining me here on the podcast.
1: Thank you. All right. Well, that
0: concludes another episode of Let's Connect. And I hope that it's inspired you as much as it has me. Thank you so much for tuning in. And remember to subscribe to both the YouTube channel and the podcast channel. And I look forward to you joining me on the next episode of Let's Connect.